we are in this series on moving and looking specifically at the life of David. And last week we focused on David's anointing. David is very likely a 13, 14-year-old kid when God calls him. And he calls him because he's a man after God's own heart, a heart very different from King Saul's, a heart that doesn't need to be changed. It's already seeking God. A heart that believes strongly, faithfully in God. A heart that's all about God, not about himself. And most of all, that is so obedient to his heavenly father. You see why God chose David over Saul. When you look at the text there from 1 Samuel, David is the last one to come in. He's the youngest of these boys, and and he wasn't even invited to the sacrifice because he's out taking care of the sheep. And Jesse sends for him, and you can almost sense the confusion as, as David is out there, and, and here comes someone from Bethlehem saying, your dad wants you. Samuel's in town. He's calling for you. This young teenage kid shows up, and the Lord says to Samuel, rise and anoint him. This is the one. Then look at this other paragraph. So Samuel took the horn of oil anointed him in the presence of his brothers, and from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon him. I want to call your attention to two things in the text. Number one, I want you to notice that it says specifically, anointed him in the presence of his brothers. I want you to notice that. Wasn't his dad there? Of course his dad's there. Weren't the elders of the village there? Of course the elders of the village are there. Why in the presence of of his brothers. I want to suggest something as to why that's there here in just a moment. Secondly, notice that from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon him. Why? Why at that moment? Because you see, here's what's going to happen. Samuel anoints David, and then David goes back out into the field. He's still the shepherd. He's not the king right now. Now, in God's eyes, he is as he looks down the future, but it'll be several years, maybe 15, 16 years before he even becomes king. And so the Holy Spirit comes out on him. He goes back into the field, and there in the field, I think something happens. You see, one of the things that's always bothered me about what the Bible says about David until I notice this phrase right here is that in the next chapter, when he goes up against Goliath, One of the reasons he's so confident that he can take on the giant is that he says to Saul, your servants already killed a lion and a bear. In fact, the lion, I rescued the lamb from his mouth. The the lion turned on me. I grabbed him by his mane and I killed him. Now, y'all, I know David was a tough shepherd boy. But i got to tell you that I'm not sure any 14-year-old, in fact, I'm not sure there's an adult in here who's willing to take on a full-grown lion. Joe, are you willing to take on a lion? Joe's the biggest guy I know here. And let me tell you that if Joe's not willing to take on a lion at his age, I don't think a 15-year-old kid can. Unless that kid has the Holy Spirit unless the same spirit that gave Samson his strength gave David his strength. Don't you wonder 
what David thought after he had killed the bear? Why did God just allow me and give me the power to kill a bear? And especially the lion. Don't you know that he's thinking, why in the world did I kill a lion? I've never faced down a lion before. What's the deal here? And of course the deal here is God knows what's coming. And God was preparing him to face the giant Goliath. So that when he went out there and looked at this guy, he thought, you should have seen the lion I killed. And he knows for certain God is with him. Very important text. Notice here in 1 Samuel 17, he said, listen, I went after it in regards to the the lion and the bear. I struck it and rescued the sheep from its mouth. And when it turned on me, I grabbed it by its hair and I struck it and I killed it. Of course he did. God was preparing him. And so today we come to a fascinating psalm, the most recognized psalm in all the Bible. Psalm 23. And one of the big questions about Psalm 23 is, who wrote it, when was it written, and why was it written? Now, I want to be very respectful here of of biblical scholarship. Uh, I I, I appreciate those who have trained all their life in the biblical text. And we've been blessed with a lot of people here at Hendersonville, I mean, who've gone to college, they've gotten Bible degrees, they've gone to graduate school, and of course, Brother Rodney Cloud one of the great jewels of this congregation. A man who studied, I mean, the Old Testament, the Hebrew. I mean, he could have quoted Psalm 23 in the Hebrew. I mean, he knows the text. And so I appreciate so very much scholarship. But one of the things that's always bothered me about Old Testament scholarship in particular is that if you open up most commentaries and you turn to a psalm like Psalm 23, they'll say, okay, now who wrote this and when was it written and how did it get here? And they'll say, we really don't know. And I want to say to them, wait a minute, maybe you need to go back and re-examine the text. You see, Psalm 23 begins with the words of David. Now, when I was a young preacher, I used to tell people, those inscriptions are not original. Those, those, the way the Psalms begin sometimes with these little, okay, here was why it was written, here's the tune that you're supposed to sing it to, here's what it really is in Hebrew. I used to say to people, those are not original. They were added later. Until I did some study on that and, and came to realize that there are no Hebrew manuscripts, even among the Dead Sea Scrolls. I mean, manuscripts that are now 2,200, 300 years old that doesn't have those inscriptions in them. And so people have started arguing, maybe these are original. And I've come to believe that they are. That when it says it was written by David, it was written by David. Which causes me then to ask, is there anything in Psalm 23 that tells me perhaps when he wrote it? Now I'm going to be offering you Les Chapman's opinion of that today based on 40 years of preaching. I'm sure there are some who say, well, based on 50 years of preaching, you're wrong, brother. I may be. But I I think it makes the most sense. And here's the reason why. Songs oftentimes give us hints. I don't know if you know the story behind this song here. It is well with my soul. I mean, one of those beautiful, beautiful hymns that's just so powerful. Written by a lawyer from Chicago named Horatio Spadford. 
Horatio Spafford lived back in the late 1800s. He was a very successful lawyer, lost a lot of money in the great Chicago fire. Very devout believer in Jesus. And, and after the fire in uh, November of 1873, his family's going on vacation to London, England. And he sends his wife and his four daughters. He had had a son who had died to a disease a few years earlier. And so he's got four daughters. They get on the ship that you see here in, in, in the picture. And they leave for uh, London, November the 22nd, 1873. They're crossing the North Atlantic when they collide with another ship. And this particular ship goes down in about 15 minutes. Now you think about colliding with another ship in the middle of the Atlantic. I mean, you're like, how is that even possible? It happened. It took about two weeks to get to those who survived to, to England. And his wife, Anna Spadford, telegraphed back to Chicago the first words her husband had heard. He had stayed behind in order to do some business. He was going to join them. When he gets a telegraph that says, saved alone, what shall I do? In other words, his wife, Anna, had been spared. His four daughters had drowned. He's now childless. He rushes to the East Coast. He gets on the quickest ship he can find. He begins selling to London to be with his wife, who's just brokenhearted, as you can imagine. And as he comes across the place where this other ship had gone down, the captain, knowing who he was and what had happened to his family, called him and said, we're approaching the spot where your daughters drowned. And it was there that he took out a pen and paper and he wrote these words. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrow like sea billows roll, let those words sink in. When sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, God, you've taught me to say, it is well. It is well with my soul. You see, I'm convinced that if you know the life of David well enough, that there are times that the words of the songs themselves scream off the pages saying, maybe this is when it was written and why it was written. You see, I, I think that Psalm 23 is all tied up in the anointing of David as king of Israel. I don't necessarily think it was written right after this. But an incident like this is an incident that stays with you the rest of your life. It's like your own conversion experience. I mean, if, if you're a Christian, do you remember the day you were baptized? You see, mine was on Palm Sunday. I mean, Palm Sunday, 1970. And I remember going to my mom in the middle of the afternoon saying, Mom, I think I want to be baptized tonight. And she said, like always, go and tell your dad. And so I go and tell my dad. And dad simply said to me, great. By the way, that was my dad's response to everything. Dad, I'm marrying June. Great. Dad, I'm, I'm leaving home. Great. Dad, you're not going to have to pay my expenses anymore. You see where I'm going with this picture. You know, when David got to the end of his life, David wanted more than anything else to build a temple for God. 
You see, 1 Chronicles 28 describe it. Then David gave to his son Solomon the plans for the portico, its buildings, its storerooms, its upper parts, its inner rooms, the place of atonement. He gave him the plans that the Spirit had put in his mind for the courts of the temple of the Lord and all the surrounding rooms for the treasuries of the temple of God, for the treasuries for the dedicated things. It just goes on and on and on. You see, David wanted to build a temple for God, but God said, no, you've shed too much blood. But here's what I will let you do. I'll let you plan it. I'll let you draw up all the diagrams. I'll let you get everything together. I'll let you plan how the worship will take place. And then David says, I tell you what, God, I'll give you all of my treasury in order to build it. And even though David never lived to see this temple being built, I think he saw it in his eyes. And as he reflected on what he was doing, his mind couldn't help but go back that very first day when God called him out of the fields in order to be the king of Israel. And I can't help but think that as this old man, maybe 68, 69 years old, he died when he was 70. I'm seeing him take a pen and some parchment. and He begins to write. Reflecting on a life well lived. And you know, when you write after that many years, those words are just not words, but they're filled with so much meaning. The Lord is my shepherd. I don't have need of anything. God's blessed me all my life. I mean, you just hear it as he's pinning the words. He maketh me lie down in cream pastures. How many times had David taken his sheep in the springtime when the pastures were green And get his flock out there and they've eaten and finally they lay down. Why? Because they needed to rest. And just as David had provided rest for his flocks, God had provided rest for David in his life. And he knew what those words meant. Leads me beside the still waters. Bethlehem's a very steep area. Uh, I was there about, in fact, I was there three years ago this month. Uh, or February, excuse me, this coming month, uh, beginning uh, here in two or three weeks. And, and, and we went down to Bethlehem, and the thing that surprised me most about Bethlehem is incredibly hilly, very rocky, very steep area. And so to find quiet waters would have been quite difficult. I mean, it's kind of like middle Tennessee. If it rains up in the hills, guess what happens in the streams? You've been to Gatlinburg when they've had big rains. I love the streams of Gatlinburg, of the, of the Smoky Mountains, but you have to be careful when it's been raining. The same was here. He leads me beside the still waters. God has this calm presence about him that's going to make sure that no matter what you're going through, his presence is with you. And then I love this. He restoreth my soul. I have to think that his mind had to have gone back to his time, his horrible failure with Bathsheba. When in Psalm 51, he begs God, please, please restore the joy of my salvation. And now as an old man, he says, he does it. He restoreth my soul. He's a God of restoration. No matter what you're going through, no matter what heartaches you're experiencing, there is a God who cares for you and is willing to walk through it with you. And he says, he leadeth me in the paths of righteousness. That word righteousness literally means straight. And of course, if you've ever been there around Bethlehem, none of the paths are very straight. And you can imagine a shepherd who hopes he can get some straight paths because the sheep, they're going to wander all over the place if you don't. 
And he says, he leadeth me in the paths of righteousness. And he does it for his name's sake, for his glory. And so you have God's guidance the whole time. He leadeth me. And yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil, for thou art with me. I read this psalm at every funeral I do at the graveside. And I do it for one strange reason. Six verses. Six verses divided in two sets. Now, a lot of people say, well, it breaks really at verse 5. The theme breaks at verse 5. It really doesn't if you look at the context. But what breaks at verse 4 is pronouns. In verse 1, in verse 2, in verse 3, it's he, 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 he. He's the one that leads me beside the quiet waters. He's the one that lets me lie down in green pastures. He's the one that leads me in the path of righteousness for his name's sake. And then when you get to verse 4, something dramatic happens. And that is the pronouns change from he to thou in the old King James to you, as we would say today. Incredibly personable. Why? Because now, guess what God does? When I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, no longer he who's with me. It's you. God's right there. I'll fear no evil for you, thou, you're with me, God. It gives me the courage to go through, no matter what I'm experiencing in life, including death itself. You have promised to be with me. Your rod, your staff. Rod was used in order to fight off animals. Very likely what David used to kill the lion and the bear. The staff was that crook, what we call shepherd's crook. It was what was used to guide, to rescue, to help the sheep. And so you get this beautiful image here of both God's encouragement and also God's comfort. God's there to protect you, and he's also there to help you no matter what you're going through. And then this beautiful image here. This is where it confuses so many people. Thou preparest the table before me in the presence of my enemies. What's going on? Y'all recognize that word presence? And Samuel anointed him in the presence of his brothers. You see, one of the things I think we miss is the animosity that happened when David is anointed and his brothers are not. All you got to do is turn to the next chapter in the Bible and you have David going to fight Goliath and his older brother Eliab is sitting there just absolutely ridiculing him. Who have you left those few sheep out in the desert with? I know why you're here. You're here because you want the glory. I mean, he just rips into his little brother. And I have to wonder what it was like when David walked in out of the field to the table prepared for the big fellowship meal and then Samuel came up to him and there in front of his brothers, in front of his brothers, the text says. Have you ever noticed that when David becomes king, not one of his brothers is with him? Have you all ever noticed that? Shouldn't shock us, none of Jesus' brothers were with him. There's the reason that the apostles go Peter, Andrew, James, and John, and then it goes all the way down to Judas Iscariot himself, but none of Jesus' four brothers are with him. Now, they will follow later after Jesus appears to them. But sometimes your enemies are those of your own family. And here's God saying to David, when you just first started and your own brothers looked down on you. 
Your enemies were the ones sitting at your own table. I took care of you and protected you. Notice again, anointed him in the presence. Why? Of his brothers. I suspect God's hinting at something else. Then you anoint my head with oil. Here is God's appointment as king of Israel. But can I tell you that every one of us as Christians have an anointing? I think that's something that we so miss in the waters of baptism. Because when we obey the gospel of Jesus Christ, when we in faith and repentance go down into the waters, yes, our sins are washed away. But more important than that is the gift of the Holy Spirit. And it's a gift that John says is actually an anointing. An anointing just like the people in the Old Testament got from God. We too as Christians get from God as he calls us into his service. I think sometimes we just don't realize what happens when we come up out of those waters. You see, God has a plan for us. And it's important that we find out what that plan is in his kingdom and we carry it out. And my cup runs over. God is the God that pours and pours and pours and pours and never stops. I love what Ephesians 3.20, one of the most powerful texts, one of my favorite texts in all the Bible. As Paul says, can I tell you who the God is that we serve? Now to him, that's God, who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or even imagine. Brothers and sisters, if God's people would just dream, if God's people would just ask, James, the half-brother of Jesus, reflecting on his life, which says, you don't have because you don't ask. And here's a God who says to David, listen, I kept pouring and pouring, and your cup just kept running over. But he does the same to us. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. That word mercy there is this beautiful Hebrew word called kesed. It's a word that we really don't have an English word that matches it. I mean, sometimes we translate it love, sometimes mercy, sometimes loving kindness. I mean, the the meaning of the word is incredible in the ancient Hebrew. But even more important than the text is, surely goodness and kesed, this God's divine love, shall follow me. It's not just follow me. The Hebrew there is, it pursues me. It pursues me. It makes sure that I am going the direction I need to be going in. Put very simply, it's God's never-ending pursuit that Paul said in Philippians 1, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Our God is a God who says, listen, if I got you into the waters of baptism, do you think I'm going to abandon you when you come up out of them? And the answer is no. My love, my mercy, my goodness, everything about me continues to pursue me because, you see, God wants all of us saved more than any of us want to be saved. We need to remember that. And then he finishes with these words. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. God's incredible promise. And even though God didn't allow him to build that building, He saw it on all the sketches he had made. He saw it in his face eyes as the Spirit inspired him. And as he breathed his last, he knew that it wouldn't be his last. Because he said, listen, you will not leave my soul in shield, he had promised. And so in his own mind, 
he knew I'm going to dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I learned the 23rd Psalm when I was a kid. I don't know when. I learned it out of the old King James Version. It's still what I remember. And I know that many of you did the same thing. And by the way, if you have not, if you have not memorized the 23rd Psalm, do it. It'll change your life. I want to ask everyone to stand. And I want to ask you to join me. And let me just say this. If you cannot say that last verse, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever because you're not a Christian. I hope today you'll come see me right after the end of the services. I hope today that you'll make a decision to be anointed with God's Holy Spirit through obedience to God in faith and baptism. Join with me. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest the table before me. In the presence of my enemies, thou anointest my head with oil, and my cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for that beautiful psalm written by your servant David so long ago. And Father, we, we don't know when he wrote it. But we know why he wrote it. He wrote it because of you. And may it minister to us as much as it ministered to him some 3,000 years ago. Father, because it is all for your name's sake that we offer this prayer. In Jesus' name, amen.